Welcome to a very special edition of the New Flesh Podcast. My name is Brett Arnold, at Brett Redacted on Twitter. Joe Avella is nowhere to be found today, but fuck him. We're here with two very incredible guests. Um, sitting to my left, closest, they're both to my left, but Glenn's right here. Uh, Glenn McQuaid is here. He's uh, done a lot of visual effects work on uh, a lot of early Ty West stuff. Like Trigger Man, is that Trigger correct? Man, that's true. The Roost? The Roost. I love the true. Roost. It's amazing. We brought the bots. We brought the bots. Incredible. Yeah. And uh, to his left is uh, Larry. I wanted to get this right, Larry, because I've watched multiple interviews with you, and so many people say it so many different ways. I want to know the definitive way to pronounce Fisenden. Did I do it right? No. Fuck. Well, there's sort of two ways. Fessenden when you're pissed off, or Fessenden when you've had a few, but never do we say Fessenden, which so Fessenden. I mean, you're not alone. I'm not I, alone. I always say Fessenden. Well, the Glenn says Fuckenden. So next time someone mispronounces your name, just send them right here to the oh, New Flesh Podcast. The f- it's the first thing yes. we talked about. Be I a did that proper flogging. Yeah, I did that on purpose. And Larry is uh, responsible for. Well, you if you uh, you may recognize him from what, hundreds of <laughs> indie films that you've acted in, but he's also a writer-director of several excellent horror films, uh, No Telling, Habit, Wendigo, The Last Winter, uh, Beneath, and uh, he worked with Glenn. They worked together on this excellent uh, horror comedy called I Sell the Dead from, I think, 2010 or so? Around there. I think Around 2009, then? actually. Oof. It's foggy. I'm messing up all over the place. It was foggy. <laughs> I think your mic got turned off there. Did it? Ah. That might have been for the best. (laughs) I'm Uh, back. I'm back with a vengeance. uh, We're coming to you live from a conference room in the middle of Times Square. Thank you guys so much for uh, venturing out here and indulging me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Good to be here. uh, This pod episode was set up by a friend of the show, uh, Jason Garacio, who you guys know and have done a couple podcasts with, I believe. Um, And he brought me to your attention or brought you to my attention because you guys have a awesome an awesome event coming up at Lincoln Center uh, for Tales from Beyond the Pale which I would describe as like an old-timey radio show like one of those Orson Welles uh, scaring the whole world with the War of the Worlds type thing like one of those uh, audio dramas is that how would you describe Tales from Beyond the Pale well I'll stop you right there. I I think the uh, the original you know impetus for us to do something like this was to uh, bounce off of old time radio shows, but really to take it into the modern age. Uh, I love the old time radio shows, and it was definitely the inspiration. But for us, it felt like you know audio drama. Why shouldn't it be a, a vital medium that we can use as commentary as well as uh, entertainment. Yeah, I mean, I think our approach is to be incredibly immersive with the sound. I mean, we get more and more ambitious with it, and a lot of our compatriots, uh, Graham Resnick comes to mind, he's worked on a number of them, uh, 
literally come from sound design background. And I know that Glenn and I both, uh, all the films that I produce at Glass Eye Picks, my little indie company, we've always fetishized the, the sound process. Very often a movie has run out of money by then, and so it's not given the attention it deserves. And especially in horror, sound is where you really can... Um, uh, immerse the audience and 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 creep them out in a way that uh, if they're watching a film they they don't uh, th they can anticipate what they're looking at they can say oh that was a good effect or I know what's coming with sound you can do it on a subliminal level uh, so it's a really great tool of horror and the macabre and we've translated that just stripped away the picture altogether and here we are with these lovely tales I think also you, you hit on a good point there because there is so oh, well, many... Oh, thank you, Glenn. Yeah. <laughs> was, your, was your mic on? Yeah. <laughs> that was good. Uh, there are so many effects thrown into horror movies these days and there's very little left up to the imagination. Right. So to actually invite an audience to participate with their imagination is, is something that's, I think, pretty fresh. You know, watching a lot of horror movies right now it's the season um but i'm finding just a lot of the modern stuff it's there's just too much spelt out it's a literalness that we sort of are really enjoying being able to get away from it also from a producer's point of view i think we've enjoyed the amazing freedom i mean we can do a, a sci-fi story on another planet and we have and uh we can go on an old fishing trawler and we can go to uh, the Galapagos Islands, you know. We can really uh, push the boundaries and, and we don't spend an extra penny um, no matter where our imagination takes us. And one thing about tales, we should say, Glenn and I have written a great many of them, but we've also, it's also been a forum to invite fellow filmmakers, um, you know, literary authors, to join us in this uh, journey and we've got a lot of great original content from people who quite honestly might have wanted to make a film and couldn't get it made so they pull that story out of the drawer and they uh, and they've presented it as a, as a radio tale that's fun I think actually Lincoln Center once we've done uh, it's a double bill for the evening but that will be 40 audio dramas that we've done which is good because we've been saying 40 for some time <laughs> and it simply <laughs> hasn't been true years. finally got there <laughs> finally yeah amazing so I in a way it's a it's a way to tell a story like a like a mega budget story on like a micro budget level absolutely i mean of course some of our stories are very intimate and those sure. are great too just all in a drawing room in fact those could be low budget movies but yeah. uh I took but the, in the grandfather is that one that was yeah. excellent yeah Brilliant. that was yeah. just in a suburban home although it did feature a cat which yes. is very hard to work with animals so we can have any animal we want in our tales and we do in fact have all kinds of ape like creatures and sure, yeah, <laughs> reptiles and Half reptile, half human. And famously, Glenn's plaid seagull. Yes. Which has yes, many God, of the fans still scratching their heads. <laughs> I think, um, like going back to the grandfather, that was an, another example of just sort of experimenting in the medium. You know, it was truly psychedelic. Right. I think Graham Resnick brings the idea of psychedelia, psychedelia being the mind made manifest. I think he brings that to a lot of his work, so it was very interesting to get his take on an audio drama. And he came back for season three with a piece called The Chamber Tapes. The Chamber's Tape. The Chamber's Tape, Ooh. which is a fantastic like sort of mock uh, New Age uh, self-help cassette tape. Oh, wow. Or maybe it's not mock. I don't know. So you can well, do that remains to be. <laughs> well, uh, the fun thing about that one is it also goes into that Blair Witch territory. 
uh, of you you're not sure if the original tape from which the story is derived does exist did graham find it or uh, right. was he did he create it for the tale so there again so many fun <laughs> mind games that we can play with this forum and yet always uh it's it's just audio and you know i think in a time when we have you know, VR is going to start to hit in the next month. Um, yes. So that's another way to explore uh, storytelling. And, and there's sort of this video game thing, which we got involved in a game called Until Dawn. And ah, that yes. has a lot of, um, uh, you know, branching, story branching. And so that's an interesting thing. In other words, there's lots of great ways to uh, indulge in media now. But it's fun to sort of actually step back and and find the bare essence that exists in the in the audio tale so we've just had a lot of um, fun teasing the audience with our humble offerings it's interesting when you you really set the parameters with audio drama it's very clearly uh, you know you have no visuals at all so but at the same time you've an incredibly rich palette to choose from and as larry says budgetary wise we can go anywhere we want feature anything we want and uh, it's it's absolutely all within reason. So as a writer, it's tremendously liberating to approach content in this respect. And I think in the early days, that was one of the big draws also for us to do this. It was just like, my God, you know, we have all been in uh, on conference calls and in meeting rooms and pitching our work and the idea to just, uh, the idea was very appealing that we could just, you know, create this content, do it for ourselves and do it, you know, basically uh, through our own means. And, uh, and as I say, just go where anywhere we want and do whatever we want, write whatever we want. It was just, as a writer, just really, really liberating. Yeah, we have a number of uh, period pieces and other budgetary uh, right. restriction in the tale. Uh, we did a, a fun one called The Hound. Um, and we did which other a couple of other period pieces uh. yeah um the last one i did the ripple at cedar oh Lake, that was the it 50s. Was set in the 50s <laughs> right i'm not, not quite sure many <laughs> but it wasn't it also in the future wasn't that the <laughs> wow. it was on several uh, planes of reality so the, ha the hound yeah. was a fun one to talk about because that ah. was uh in a way it was the first time it was branching out to one of our heroes uh we had Stuart gordon direct oh, wow. that piece uh he had dennis paoli write it and Richard Band do the music. It also featured uh, Barbara Crampton. So in a way, it was a wow. return to the heyday of you know Reanimator from Beyond and wow. that kind of work. You know, so it was a pleasure to be involved in that. And just uh, I, I went out to L.A. to uh, watch, well, to help produce. But really, I just sat there like sort of like a fly in the wall watching his process with the actors. Stuart Gordon. Yeah. Wow, that's that incredible. was the only. Uh Tale from Beyond the Pale that was an adaptation, which is an interesting point. Another thing that, you know, that we stray from the sort of the traditional old-timey revivalistic uh, radio plays, which can be great fun. They're very often, um, you know, Edgar Allan Poe or, or H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, and we have had all original tales, whether they're period pieces or not. And um, it's it's been fun. But with Stuart, of course, we were quite delighted to uh, bend the rules a little and get sure. a uh, and um i recently read an observation that the hound um which is hp lovecraft is a very slight story and it was uh, it's actually the embellishments that stewart brought to it are 
just delightful, and I might say rather sexy. Barbara <laughs> Crampton is is back in Stuart Gordon's world, and he does know how to uh, exploit her loveliness. And <laughs> she's a real vixen in this. <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of fun with the bed squeaks. Yes. Oh my God. A team of experts. <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, doing period pieces and how you can do that on the radio. Um, I Sell the Dead was a period piece. And I was blown away consistently watching that movie with how you guys got away with making that on such... I'm sure the budget wasn't ample. Like, it wasn't... I will say, um, for all we're saying about Tales, it does sort of derive from the overall mission at Glass Eye Picks, my company, which is do not write for the low budget. Let sure. your imagination run free, and then we'll figure out how to do it on a budget. And I really... Um, it's very traditional, and we have uh, the Jason Blum um, new tradition that's all over the theaters of just putting something in a house and getting a famous actor and paying nobody anything and making a scary story. And that, that, that's been interesting. We've had quite a run of it. But Glass Eye, we took the opposite approach. It's like, whatever you want, we can, we can make it work. And when I saw the dead, I really took that to heart. <laughs> yes. Yeah, how so did you make that work? It's uh, it's it's it, mind boggling. It two words: Staten Island. <laughs> well, I was going to say two words. Uh, well, like you could we many words, but uh, <laughs> Be Beck Underwood was fantastic. Ah, true indeed. Uh, she was our art director on the movie, and also went out and just scouted a lot of locations. And we, myself, and Beck and Larry, uh, our production designer David Bell. We all went and just sort of sourced really great locations that were sort of stones throw to from uh, the Glass Eye Picks office at the time, <laughs> which was downtown Manhattan. And so we shot a lot of the movie in Staten Island. We found a great cemetery, found a great fort, Fort Wadsworth, and they were very welcoming to us. And actually within I Saw the Dead, there's probably about four different locations uh, that we shot uh, for, at for Fort Wadsworth for it as the... Uh, is the execution at the start, but then there's also the cell scenes with Ron Perlman right. and Dominic Monaghan. So we really sort of found these great spots and milked them for everything they were worth. Having said that, you know, if we tilted the camera even a degree up, you'd have seen the Verrazano Bridge <laughs> and stuff like that. So <laughs> it was a real testament to uh, Larry's mission with Glass Eye Picks, which was to uh, branch out to uh, different types of talent and um, when I, I think I had approached you with several scripts and, and this being one of them and probably the most, in a way, absurd <laughs> so surprise when you were like, this. This is the one. Uh, well, it didn't hurt that I had a lead role in it. Of course, people yeah. know how to get me going. But um, <laughs> I want to tribute uh, my, my two producers uh, on that project, Peter Polk and Brent Kunkel. They cleverly disguised as students. They went to Fort Wadsworth, <laughs> and they asked to do the, the tour, and they sort of had little booklets in their hands as if they were going to take vigorous notes for their class. And, of course, they were really scouting the location. They got to know the oh, guide wow. and basically... Uh, um, well, let's say it nicely. They they endeared themselves to him. And by the end, we built a prop door, and the guy said, oh, this is great. And we said, well, we'll take it down. Of course, we don't want to disturb the historical uh, uh, relevance of the place. And he said, oh, no, 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 it's great. We'll use it in the tour. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a fake We should door. do the tour. I bet it's still there. <laughs> it's yeah. probably still there. Uh, wow. So 
uh, Larry, you've worked with a lot of, I mean, in, in Tales from the Island Pale, you've given, you're, you say you, you know, a lot of artists you're working with, but you've, uh, it seems like you're, would you say you're like a protege to a lot of young filmmakers? Like, did Ty West get a start with you? Isn't, isn't that, that's correct to say? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, in that sense, Ty would be my protege, but the truth oh, is, yes. is that I'm very lucky to, uh, to have met a, what I think is just an amazing crop of talent. And what's interesting is I think about them generationally and they were all coming out of um, the video generation. You know, they all had fetishized uh, horror videos in their basement, the kinds that you get at the little strange odd store down the road. And yeah. so it's a certain generation um, of guys that I tapped into, uh, like Ty West and then also uh, Graham Resnick, they're, they're yes. uh, uh, knew each other and were, um, they're great collaborators together. Glenn is a little older, but he also came from, he's sort of between my generation and theirs. But I'm just saying that it was a great crop of kids and, and I encouraged them. I just saw this opportunity, you know, when I make movies there, um, have sort of environmental themes or socially conscious themes, and they're actually incredibly hard to get financed. So, right. But there's another type of horror movie that I love, the pulpy horror, and I thought, let's get some other stuff uh, out there into the world. Um, and I could do it with very little money um, and get these kids started. And actually, the movies we made in those days um, generated enough funds that I was able to turn it around and make another one. James McKenney, another artist who made uh, a number of films for the company, uh, including Automatons, which we made black and white Super 8 movie with robots created, uh, you know, with garbage cans. I mean, just crazy yeah. stuff, and then getting a rave review in the New York Times. So we really were very adventurous in those days, and all the kids were willing to work uh, for cheap. It was fun, and uh, it's a new crop of kids now. I work with... Uh, a filmmaker named Mickey Keating. He's oh, on yeah. fire. He's a crazy maniac, which is number one um, criteria for me. <laughs> uh, so the mission continues, but it was a golden period. Uh, those guys, Jim Mickle, also came into the fold and made Stake Lane. Oh, yeah. And uh, Keating did uh, Darling. Keating did Darling. Which you're in. I'm in it for a second. A second That's a yeah. hot second. And right. it's a. Uh, ill-advised hot second yeah. but <laughs> i mean it's odd to have uh, comic relief uh you know five eighths through a film for 30 seconds but the movie uh stands on its own and it's a lovely picture um in the tradition of re repulsion absolutely um let's throw to one a clip from uh tales from beyond the pale here you sent me a bunch of them let's do uh the Hound is, is in here, so let's do that one. Ah, for sure. You let's guys already introduced The Hound. Is that a mummy? Indeed. From the Great Pyramid at Giza. Oh, and those statues, they're... Well, they're beautiful. Yes, yes. The Whitechapel women. The Ripper's victims. And they're not statues, thank you. St. John labored tirelessly to restore life, if not to their persons, to their appearance. Oh, what is that? That is the most notorious, most infamous tome in existence. The Necronomicon by the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred. 
the leather binding. It looks like... A human face? It is, my dear. And it is written in human blood. Magnificent, is it not? But this, this is the piece de resistance of our collection. It's glorious and abhorrent. Is it pure jade? We just acquired it from a source in the Low Countries. It's over 500 years old. Oh, far older than that. It predates the pharaohs. St. John, the Necronomicon, it opened of itself. Fascinating. And look, the revealed page. It's the same figure as that carved on the amulet, the winged hound. The sole symbol of the corpse-eating cult of the lost continent of Atlantis. What's that? I don't know. Something... Scratching. At the door. But how? No one knows the way to our private vault except for us and that woman. And to have a score that rich, I mean, yeah. it really takes the mission to another level. And it's all about getting these guys enthused. I think they see an opportunity. They can be creative in a, in a rather uh, short amount of time and really get something out there. And another thing that Glenn and I do is we... Um, we have posters for each tale, and we really celebrate the whole presentation. And in that regard, I think we're very old school. In the old days, you used to paw through books and look at images, and sometimes you had no other access to the to the films except fleetingly on television. Right. So you were left with this sort of uh, entire world uh, of of poster art and uh, the occasional still from a movie. And I, we we try to recreate that. It's also I think it still works in this day and age because there's a collector mindset out there. I was going to say, horror back, fans you know. love collecting stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Bless them. That's why we love horror fans. They really get it. They see that the... And there's lots of little inside strands and jokes that, uh, you know, that just sort of occur naturally as, as we collaborate over the years. Um, and, you know, there's also our personas. All these things are to be mined and enjoyed. But we've had great artists uh, working with us, uh, Gary it, Pullen. Uh, Gary Pullen did all of season two, or sorry, season one. Uh, and the some logo. Of season two, <laughs> our logo. Yeah. We got Graham Humphreys to do all of the 10 episodes, the posters for uh, season three. Wow. And uh, yeah, that was really beautiful. I mean, he's just incredible. And I grew up in Ireland, so I was more used to seeing uh, Graham Humphreys' poster work for things like Nightmare on Elm Street. Sure. Evil Dead, and he's got this beautiful, almost uh, chalk stroke vibe about his artwork that's stunning. So it was a real coup that he was into what we were doing and, and would come along and help us. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by your jump from, you know, visual effects to audio. Yeah. It's like such a drastic, like the complete opposite yeah. of, a, of, a, of a move. Well, yeah, it's been a long, strange journey. I went to art school in Ireland, and I studied uh, visual communications, which is sort of essentially graphic design and typography sure. and illustration and so on. And when I came to the States, I got into 
animation through After Effects and a machine at the time called the Flint, which then became a flame. And so I got into uh, visual effects, but more, more motion design, truthfully. And from motion design, um, got into working with uh, Larry here because I was able to provide a lot of visual effects for the uh, vampire movie that they, the vampire bat movie that they shot no vampire bats for. <laughs> so it was a sort of a case like we've got, we've got this footage, you know, I think you were actually at the time, if you remember, you were going to have Bram Ravel uh, sketch and, and basically uh, uh, ink the bats over, over footage. Yeah. I mean, speaking of uh, multimedia, the other thing we like to do and we've uh, adapted Glenn's uh, I Sell the Dead into a comic book. But early on, I, uh, when I was out looking for <laughs> young collaborators, I met uh, Bram Ravel at Cooper Union. He was just graduating. Uh, and he's a fantastic uh, visual artist, and I employed him for uh, uh, Wendigo, to make a Wendigo comic, and sort of the storyboards kind of it went along with that. And then uh, we went along and made some comic books for the movies but also he has such a great storytelling ability that he really was a great asset and he would always help me at least with my pictures to uh to get oriented and draw um set design and all that stuff as you ramp into the film uh so when we were going to make the roost for ty i said well let's do an experiment and see if this is worth green lighting this film and i went out into the park and i ran around like i was being attacked and, <laughs> and brahm drew the bats little silhouettes and it was so beautiful i typical of me i would have just gone with that <laughs> but then right. we did meet glenn at the same time and he had a whole shop doing football commercials and they were all very excited to get involved in a narrative so they came on board and they did some real cgi bats but always with uh, brahm's initial impulse uh well, sure that yeah. was definitely the uh the way it worked brown would do the drawings and yeah sometimes just pre anim pre-animate them and we would just follow the the, the the cues that he would give us and bram is uh such a good storyteller we have him actually on season three of tales from beyond the pale he wrote and directed junk science which had uh which is a, a $50 million sci-fi picture. Yeah, it's a movie. <laughs> wow. We got uh, if Mike, it were Michael a film. Cerberus <laughs> and Alison Wright from The Americans and yeah. Nick Dimitri. It was a fun, it's a lovely, lovely piece. Very sweet. And uh, Glenn, uh, just to be clear, this, the, the leap from uh, graphics to sound, I mean, it needs to be said that Glenn, like a lot of us, had a history uh, playing music back in his youth, and, and now he's actually... Uh, contributing a little bit of music to some of these new tales, and it's been really oh, wow. fun to see him find his sea legs, and and you know, that's sort of what tales is about. It's in fact, I have a seven-inch single coming out in about two. Well, weeks. Glenn, you did you really? say seven-inch? <laughs> seven inches of goth. <laughs> he's seven inches and he's single. I'm impressed. <laughs> single. Okay, we'll uh, clean this up. Yeah, on uh, Holy Mountain Records, I've got a, uh, I've got a, uh, a sort of a. S sort of a goth band called Witchboard and we have a uh, Witchboard Witchboard yeah and we have a based have in a, Brooklyn here we're based in Brooklyn and uh, <laughs> we have a when I say we it's me <laughs> it's him and his dog we have a uh, seven inch record coming out called Yes I Drink Blood nice that's amazing when is that uh, release yeah plug it plug away 
it should be two weeks. Where uh, the records are, the vinyl is coming. Sh- it should be getting pressed right now. Dynamite. Well, and Holy Mountain Records. We should plug them please. for sure. Go to the website. There's fantastic T-shirts, artwork, great music. Um, they've been really supportive. They've done beautiful um, silk screens for all my films, which are lovely. In fact, we're supposed to do some promotional work for that, Glenn. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, but they'll be available soon, and they're really special, just nice pieces of art. Sure. And while we're doing plugs, uh, the date for uh, the Lincoln Center, Tales from Beyond the Pale. October 20th. My God. October 20th. That's Dang. very soon. Yes. How's the writing going, Glenn? <laughs> so you're, it's, it's still ongoing. Oh, yeah. Well, the my wife always says, so why don't you guys just do an old one? And I'm like, what? Oh, huffy puffing stuff and nonsense. I like the challenge of, you, <laughs> oh, know, yeah. so the, you know, six weeks before a you show. You love a deadline. You know it's, yeah. it's coming. But this one, I, I struggled, man. I, I wrote like four plays Three of them um, just didn't quite click the mustard for me, so I decided to uh, go with something a, a little bit lighter. Uh, my initial story was tackling the AIDS epidemic in you know er- early '80s, and Jesus, I was just pulling my hair out by the end of it. It was just too too somber, and you know it's, the story's there now. It might resurrect itself some other way, but. Uh, you know, after after writing, or really pulling my hair out for weeks, I, I wrote wrote a play pretty quickly in one sitting, uh, the first draft, and decided, cool, that's what I'm going to go for. Just something a little bit lighter, maybe a bit of a throwback to a sort of a fun 80s horror evening. Okay. It's, it's really, it's funny, we, we always say that we're the producers, but the curators of tales. And one of the pleasures is, finding a balance like if we have a live show there's at least going to be two maybe three different tales and we often invite other writers into the uh into the writing room as it were but uh it's all about finding a balance so if there is a heavier piece then it's nice to have a lighter one or maybe you're going to go heavy all in but the point is is uh, i think we've had a lot of fun we also build the seasons with that in mind if we get three space epics unless we're going full-on full frontal space uh, yeah. for the whole season we would usually encourage people to uh to come up with something different uh and um it's funny there's the one story we get every time it's about the haunted record and we finally finally uh, we oh did wow it. finally we did one so now when we get those we can say sorry done it <laughs> i think for season two randomly we had about four submissions about a, a haunted record and it was like oh my god do you, do you have like open submissions or just like Writer friends of like, yours, like so many things at Glass Eye, it's often someone we meet and sure. then they say they want to do it, and Glenn and I get very nervous because we <laughs> don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but we do have some modicum of standards, and uh, <laughs> um, so it's it's hard to say it's open, sure, but it uh, it's I say it's circumstantial sure. how things come to us, and then it's of course we've gone to people and and ask them for tales i have a great pitch from ty west i'm just waiting for him to fit us into his schedule oh wow it's fun to build a uh, collection and as you say we'll start off with one or two ple- pieces that we really like they're usually quite diverse and sort of build on it from there so i think we have also asked in the past that writers submit a couple of treatments you know whether they're log lines or treatments you know three two or three ideas that we can choose from and 
as Larry said, it's sort of a mix of people that we just hang out with or people that we randomly meet or an admirer we met, hung out with Stuart Gordon at the Stanley Film Festival. And maybe that's where the idea came. That's that true. But how in heaven's name did we meet Eric Red? I don't know. I met Eric <laughs> Red years and years ago at a Fangoria convention. And but that's not how he came to us. scared him anyway, with fandom. I can't that remember. Was, uh, that was a really fantastic experience. Uh, just when I met with Eric Red and thinking about all his movies and not just the 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 well-known ones, but I always liked body parts when I was little. I didn't even know it was him. You know, I just went sure. to the movies in the old days, and uh, that haunted me forever. It really, uh, so his whole body of work was quite exciting, and meeting him, and of course he's, uh, you know, he's kept at it and worked in this business for a long time, and you know, you have some hardened tales from these types of people, and uh, it was just really fun to collaborate with him, and he came up with such a zany not exactly what you'd expect from him. Sure. Uh, it was a tale about um, uh, a child's beauty pageant, and it goes quite awry. And what's fun is that this was one of the tales that really pushes the envelope of um, what you can do with sound, because it's really an epic ending in the spirit of Carrie or some sort of movie where people are all trapped in, a, in an auditorium and there's mayhem going on. And yeah, to do that vicious. with audio was really uh, very, very exciting. And we even got one review that said, "This some things just shouldn't be done in audio. <laughs> uh, whereas other ones were just uh, flabbergasted and I delighted by it all. I love, as we continue the mission, I, I, I feel like there's, uh, for me at least, uh, a willingness to really explore and experiment and push my own boundaries uh, regarding storytelling through audio. Like the last piece I did for season three was the ripple at Cedar Lake, which was sort of a take on a crime of passion in the 1950s, but I added this science fiction element that uh, was also about colliding universes and a multi-universe theory popping in. So you have characters, the, you have the one character on top of itself over and over again, and as well as messing around with like old school dub effects like just echoes and reverbs and stuff like that. You just have this cool interplay of uh, the same actor talking to itself over and over and over again and pushing that to the point of it being unlistenable <laughs> and hopefully just taking it back a little bit then, you know. So. But that's what's cool. I mean, we're talking about this is an audio experience, and I think sometimes it's fun to just remind ourselves that it could also be like music. It doesn't all have to be where the audience is like, I know just what's happening. Sure. And in Glens, it really is like that. There are two guys uh, swimming on a uh, raft in the middle of a lake, and they look across and they see themselves in a different time zone uh, doing something else. Having oh, sex. Well, well, yes, having sex, but <laughs> I was trying to keep it clean, Glenn. But um, we don't <laughs> the point is, is it's, somehow it works, and you, right. you realize there's two time continuums in this piece. But going back to season two, which was all done live, uh, Larry's piece Caper, I thought at the time stretched the idea of just pure audio um, f and being able to follow the characters just with footsteps or, or, you know, and climbing and just their physicality, being able to follow uh, this them and the actual storyline without any dialogue for quite a long period was uh, 
very interesting. That was, um, again, such a visual thing. It was a house that was shape-shifting. And, like, the guy's running up the stairs, and he's like, I don't understand how the stairs could be this high. And then he <laughs> drops his phone, and you just hear it echoing, echoing, <laughs> echoing. And, you know, it's a two-story house. So yeah. uh, it's that kind of mind game that's just, uh, it's really fun. I'm really impressed that you said the whole season two was live. Yeah. How, like, this sounds like something that would need to be, like, heavily done in studio. How does it translate to a live show? It's like a, it's you're you're literally live like with like a soundboard like yeah. yes wow. it's it's uh triggering it's the sounds according to the script and then we have of course foley which is right. part of the pleasure of seeing the live shows is there's someone over there stomping their feet Fo- foliage uh, as we like to call foliage. them <laughs> uh it, well that's our autumnal word for it um it's a and you know they're piece, stabbing you know? watermelons and breaking glass and and you know opening the little door and uh wow i think it's uh it's a different beast, you know. There's the comforts of the studio and the comforts of multiple takes uh, to help you form a, a right. A, it's got to be really like way different. Ad- yeah, ad- yeah, it's different. And I think when we did season one, and we were just so uh, enamored by the process, it was just like, well, okay, how do we keep pushing this? And it seemed like a crazy idea. Well, you know, let's let's do them live and. Doing season two, doing them all live, I think really helped us cut our teeth in a way that um, was just quite different from season one, you know, where literally everything has to go right and in one take. And even when it doesn't, you got to roll with it and and own it. And uh, so we go into these live events very well prepared, but also you know, with a bit of a punk attitude that, you know, sure. we'll we'll make it work, you know. So there's just an edge to the live shows. It's fabulous. I mean, it's to me, it's some of the most exciting times I've had probably in my life was just when we're going on stage. Certainly at, at the, uh, we did an event. We've done some in st- at, at the Stanley event in Colorado. We did one in Montreal at Fry Fest a while ago. And, uh, they're just a hell of a lot of fun, you know, and I, the audience are really up for it, really up for the experience of either kind of closing their eyes and enjoying it or right. opening them and seeing how... Yeah, I was going to ask, are their eyes all closed, just the whole it, audience it, it, just thinking it's, it's a mix. I mean, there's certainly stuff, there's certainly fun stuff to watch, sure. you know, because we're generally sort of running around uh, like lunatics. Certainly the Foley is hilarious to watch. Yeah. And, um, we try and... We sort of joke that we sort of uh, strap our actors to their mics so there's absolutely no physical performance from them. And okay. we remind them that really the Foley and the sound design is their physical performance. So it's a very, very interesting process to uh, produce and also to, to watch. And mind you, it doesn't always go well. There's uh, <laughs> one evening we often reminisce about when here comes the gunshot, and there was none. <laughs> oh. and so Glenn had the brilliant idea that if he threw his body uh, at, with tremendous force onto the floor, that somehow this would represent the, the blow that would help us continue with our All story. Right. And when that didn't work, I just started banging pots and pans, and I, I looked up, and the two actors at the time, which were Larry and Michael Cerberus, just stopped performing, turned around and looking at me Incredulous. like... Incredulous. <laughs> I don't know. I, t- I saw pity in your eye. <laughs> uh, so, but at the same time, you know, uh, 
it was not a moment that I was super embarrassed by, you know, it just sort of felt right. And talking to the audience after, they just either didn't notice anything was up or just thought it was great, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's all part of the show. Absolutely. Yeah. Another uh, thing we did on that live show, and we've done lots of other fun things, but my favorite was uh, for Glenn's piece called The Crush, we had the audience participate, and they they are in the recording which we released you know and oh, so wow. you uh we gave them a, a just a little heads up before the show and said you guys are an essential element here and then we had you know that classic bouncing ball so they had their lines up oh, on the wow. screen and they had to say you guys don't fuck around no we <laughs> certainly for <laughs> <laughs> sean young uh, yeah. the bouncing ball budget That's oh all yeah in there. man hey there's just no uh, stone unturned <laughs> um Larry, I know you at one point, this is a little off topic, mm -hmm. but uh, you were going to remake um, The Orphanage. Mm -hmm. What what happened there? Well, it was actually, oddly enough, a really great experience, even though it has a sad ending. Everybody's prepared, I hope. Um, <laughs> but I got a, a call from an agent in L.A., uh, and that never happens. <laughs> and this uh, woman said, I want to be your agent. And I said, I cannot imagine why. Do you know what I do? I'm here in New York making tiny low-budget movies and uh, getting into trouble in general. And she said, no, 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 you're going to remake The Orphanage. Well, I'd heard about it. It wasn't even out yet. It was um, a Spanish film, of course. Right, yeah. And, Biona? And it, but it had yeah. only been um, in festivals at that point. So okay. I called my... Um, but I did know that Guillermo del Toro was the producer, so I called my pal Ron Perlman, who was in uh, Hellboy 2 at the time. Oh, yeah. And I said, Ron, can you f find out what's going on? Because this Hollywood agent says that I'm remaking a movie that no one's even seen yet. Um, and Ron got back to me um, a week later and said, I think uh, you'll like the news that I have for you. Guillermo has handpicked you to do this film. So, Holy um, shit. That was didn't bother telling you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this he guy. well he hadn't <laughs> told me yet. It was so funny. Uh, so the agent jumped the gun. It seems. Yeah, we were in production. You know what's funny is we were in production on Stakeland, and therefore that was also the exact moment that Tales from Beyond the Pale was born because Glenn and I were driving up to the set of Stakeland, Jim Mickles' vampire picture, right? And uh, and we were listening to Radio Tales with my young nine-year-old kid and glenn turned to me and said oh my god these are so fun and we both realized we had to glass i had to make radio plays so that was all on that oh journey. wow uh anyway i went out to i i actually i went and screened the orphanage this was true it turns out so i went to new line <laughs> and i talked to those executives and then i screened the movie and uh, it was obviously, it's a very elegant film with a great performance in its center and a lot of atmosphere. But I felt there was just one or two things that I couldn't wait to uh, get my hands on and, and tweak. So I went and rewrote um, the script based on the existing script. Um, and I did that all on my own. And then I called Guillermo and I said, I have a script. And he was like, fascinating. It's like you're sleeping with my woman. <laughs> so he said uh, he wanted to start all over again as a collaboration. He didn't want to read my uh, crap. Actually, he did read it. Okay. And then he said, do you mind if I use this to get you the job? So uh, the executives uh, read my draft and they said, okay, cool. We'll, we'll do this. Because you have to understand I'm an unknown out there. Sure. Um, and... Um, uh, then for, I don't know what, a year and a half, we wrote the script. I got notes from the top brass at uh, 
New Line. Uh, Which means you were like getting paid. And, like, I was getting paid more right. than I've ever been paid for anything. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so it was actually a great time. And I'll tell you, the reality is that that's one of the the golden periods uh, at Glass Eye Picks was when this was happening because I felt so flush that I could be very generous with my collaborators and say, of course, let's make that movie. Of course, let's do this. Let, okay. let me lend you a hand. I'm all taken care of. I've got a Hollywood career ahead of me. So, uh, And then my time with Guillermo was incredibly precious, and getting notes from Del Toro was awesome. He'd say, yeah, it's fucking dead. You write like an Agatha Christie novel. Strip this dialogue <laughs> away, and he'd just give me a hard time and tell me I was a Protestant. You know, just he's very <laughs> boisterous and... I went and lived the, I mean, I visited his incredible lair, which is where he keeps I imagine it's the house from Crimson Peak. It's almost like that, <laughs> although actually considerably smaller. And speaking of tragedies in the business, he was packing to go to live in New Zealand for the next, like, four years to wow. make. Uh, so, and it was just funny. You were talking about, talk about tchotchkes. This is Guillermo del Toro. He's like, should I bring my my um, three foot shark uh, jaws model, you know, <laughs> or should I bring my uh, ancient to his New Zealand yeah, pad? New Zealand. Yeah. In other words, it was obviously this. He, his library was gorgeous. He had a Hitchcock room. He had a room of oh illuminated God. manuscripts behind an ancient uh, door that was, you know, a bookshelf. I mean, everything you can imagine. <laughs> he had uh, treated himself to, and his wife and family well, you know, lived you, you down hit the, the big time. You know, when you have a secret room, yeah, pull a book and yeah, yeah you pull the book, <laughs> turns around. Uh, so it was just candled back. <laughs> <laughs> it was fabulous. It was a great time, and then we started casting. We had a great script. Uh, everyone in Hollywood loved it. I had my agent now. Did woman. you have people attached? No. So that's when uh, things got a little dicey, and huh. uh, I went. I flew to. Um, to London to meet Kate Winslet. Are you serious? She said she would do it, and I mean, for <laughs> like three weeks, I was in on cloud nine. Uh, oh, I'm sorry to bring up these traumatic memories. Well, as I say, the yeah, thing is, a, is it yeah. was actually a very good experience, except you know, it did sort of peter out. She she withdrew and did another project instead, and then um, a little movie called Titanic. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, exactly. Different time. No, no, <laughs> she did the Todd Haynes miniseries. Um, oh, okay. But also, she she told me she didn't want to do something uh, quite so depressing. She just killed herself in two movies in a row, <laughs> Revolutionary Road and, yeah. and the other one. So she literally, I think, uh, and, you know, she had uh, issues at home and her kids and so on. So sure. that was the decision. It was lovely meeting her, and, and then she put me in touch with her people. So I met Anne Roth, the great costume designer. I mean, this wow. is how close it got. I was Jesus, starting to man. meet and even do the schedule, and it was fun to argue with the, you know, the the AD and say how it should be scheduled, and to really start imagining this production, and all all always with G Guillermo's incredibly generous counsel. So it was what wonderful. And then one day uh, he called and he said, "It's just well." Kate backed out, then I went to two other actors, and, and now it had really been quite a number of months yeah. uh, that we've been trying to cast, and I think they got cold feet, and they started thinking, maybe Fezzanin's insane, and nobody <laughs> wants to work with him. Uh, so they actually kept the project alive and went to another director, and they were going to make it um, with that guy, and... Uh, and then I think it just... I was going to say, I was thinking, I don't think that happened ever. <laughs> it didn't actually did come not. to... And yeah. I regret it, because I would have... Uh, 
love to see the script. As I say, there's some real. Um, That's a great movie. The interesting. Um, yeah, but there's some cool changes that we made. What was, if if you don't mind, what what was like the coolest addition that you'd say you added to the script? I don't even know. You know, I'm probably legally bound not oh, to say, but shit, I'll tell you yeah. what we did. Uh, no one listens to this podcast. Very important to me <laughs> is we condensed the time frame. When you see the movie, it's one of those things where they lose the kid. And then it literally says three months later, right. and now they're in counseling. I made the whole thing happen in five days. So every single day, the, mo the mother wakes up, and she's like, he could still be alive, you see? So right. there was none of that sense of... Uh, sure, yeah. Uh, it, it made the whole thing so urgent. Yeah. And the relationship between the husband and the wife, he's like, it's he's, he's fine. She's like, he's not taking his medicine, because if you recall, he had a um, medical problem. Right, right, right. So it just made it so tense, you literally... I mean, because honestly, if you lose a child or, if, you know, any sort of mishap, every minute is so painful. Sure. So we added, I think, this incredible urgency wow. uh, and, and other things. But that was to me. The and it was set in space, right? <laughs> that's right. Yes. <laughs> oh, and. and uh, you Jason X'd it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, so it was fun. Did that sour you on doing any studio thing? No. In fact, I. It's funny. I made a, a, a web posting when when the news came out. Um, a lot of people assumed that Fesnan couldn't work with Hollywood. And, oh uh, God! I I said, listen, guys, I'm going to set you straight. And I wrote one of these things that you do sometimes. You an wanna, open letter. Yes, an open letter. This is before Twitter, so it was <laughs> actually longer than 140 characters. <laughs> sure. Um, but I wrote an open letter. Yes, to to my three fans. Which, so my mother read it. Um, <laughs> And I just said, I had a fabulous time. I was well-treated, respectfully, and paid. And uh, I met amazing collaborators, and I did dream. You know, it's like a, a Kafka story. I dreamt I was a man for one moment, uh, you know, a Hollywood player. Uh, so it didn't sour me. It was a good experience. I just, things don't always work out, and that's very clear. It's not just me who's having trouble in Hollywood. It's a tough place, you know. Mm -hmm. It's not for the, the faint of heart. And, you know, I've pitched other things, and been back there it's all good it's all good yeah it's all good uh d glenn do you are you pretty set on this tales from beyond the pale thing is that like your favorite thing to do or do you have like a lingering i want to go cut some people's heads off in movies uh it's weird yeah i definitely <laughs> have enjoyed and uh, have concentrated on tales for the past couple of years uh but there's there's always been a lure to get back in and get back on set um this i don't think i've ever really stopped writing you know definitely right. there's a lot of scripts out there but uh and the tales is writing well this yeah. is it as well yeah. but no yeah. i mean i've got a couple of projects actually in development now uh there's one in ireland a pretty big budget piece and with with larry and also uh, can you tell us uh, anything about it or is it under wraps. I don't want to jinx it. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's no. it's glass eye picks with a, a wonderful uh, company in Ireland um, called Fantastic Films. Uh, we're all working together. Okay. Uh, in development on, uh, you know, I would say it's a pretty epic horror comedy. Um, Ooh. I'll say no more. Um, okay. I'm also say working no with um, no. <laughs> with a uh, Clay McLeod Chapman on a, on a script right now. We've written a few scripts together, but. Uh, uh, working with Clay on what I want to be a very, very low-budget uh, thriller that is sort of a heart 
heartfelt response to what happened in the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. Oh, I just wow. wanted to talk about homophobia, generational complacency uh, to violence and bullying and, uh, you know, really take it from there. It's sort of a an intimate look at uh, two older gay men trying to mind their own business and trouble comes knocking and they make a stand uh, for their wow. dignity. So. That sounds amazing. Yeah, these are the pieces that I'm working on right now. But certainly I've I've never sort of given up the dream of, you know, getting more film work out there. It's just when Tales from Beyond the Pale came along and it been in, uh, so sort of liberating and, and invigorating as an artist to just get this kind yeah. of wild stuff out there. And as Larry says, invite other people into that project as well. It's sort of, be- it's a beautiful thing to right. to write and to know whatever you're writing is absolutely, for the most part, <laughs> going to get produced, you know, so. Sure. Uh, uh, you said I, the dream a second ago. Is that the dream for you, is to, like, make all these big, big old movies? Uh, I, at this stage, I'm I'm very happy. I think I'm, at this stage, for the past few years, I've been, I have been more of a writer sure. than a director. I'm very proud of the work that I'm doing. Um, I, I love the idea of dabbling in mixed media, uh, film, audio, music. At this stage, I feel like I'm more of a journeyman, and that I'm, sure. you know, tapping into all sorts of things. Um, I do believe I've got a couple of good films in me that I'm really eager to get out to. Amazing. Uh, we had uh, Lloyd Kaufman from Troma uh, on a few weeks ago, <laughs> and I just was struck by the like you guys. I would say you're similar in that you guys are all you know low budget indie horror filmmakers but their brand is so much different than yours i just want to know are you a fan of that type of stuff as well or do you like the more like intellectual uh ambitious i'm a huge fan of lloyd yes uh his movies are too goofy for me though i feel the same way i i can't really sit through a lot of trauma movies but he is the coolest guy on the planet. Oh, he really is. And, you know, he's very political. Oh, and, God, uh, he brought up some fucked up shit on the podcast. Yeah. No, it's inspiring to hear him uh, talk. And usually he's there promoting his goofy stuff. And he's actually wonderful at that. You know, he really brings a, a, a buoyancy into the room. Yeah. But then he can easily segue into some serious shit about the business and about yeah. uh, politics in New York. Um, politics in China is what he brought up on my podcast. Yeah. No, he's he's a really dynamic figure. This We need more... Uh, Lloyd Kaufman it's all coming from the heart that's his vision all that kooky stuff and yeah. uh, and he's made it work uh, for him and, and also you know I'd like to say like Glass Eye but in any case he has inspired a lot of filmmakers uh, we have a comrade named Doug Buck who's actually a very serious f- uh, filmmaker yeah. and, and has, a, has a tale in our next season And um, uh, but Doug uh, you know uh, got a check for writing a script for Lloyd so what did Doug Wright, do you know, was it Poultry Geist? Or <laughs> no. One uh, of the several Poultry Geist. to do with chickens. <laughs> <laughs> something about the world. It's a green world or something. I don't know. I'm terrible yeah, at no, that. Lloyd is fantastic. We did a, a chat with Lloyd at, a, at YouTube. Yeah, um, that was fun. About a year ago. Yeah, he's big on he that. He just absolutely blew me away. He's yeah. so politically and socially aware. I was just really hats off to the man i think he's a well you know what he reminds you is that um and i want to take this mantle as well you know independence is actually uh making indie films and having a community of filmmakers and putting movies out yourself and being a showman 
this has now become a political stance because you're saying as opposed to this cookie cutter media that we're all dealing with. I mean, the endless parade of uh, superhero films. Um, they're snatching movies. up all of our beautiful uh, young, uh, uh, you know, new performers who totally. make one indie movie, and as soon as they're hot, and you think, well, now maybe I can put them in my film and raise one million dollars. They're snatched up, and they're too busy. Um, I mean, this yeah, is true of. of uh, well, anyway, I, mean, I think uh, it's an absolutely infected the horror genre as well. Like you'll go see a horror movie now, and it's really more of a superhero movie or a super. Well, did that movie. to Dracula. Um, Dracula. Oh, Dracula Untold or whatever. Yeah, yeah, which I mean, I didn't see it, and actually, I have a friend who liked it. But the I bottom line is that it they was are very well made, very well directed. But it is a superhero. They're still shoehorning movie. the universe in there, yeah, like exactly. that. They went and did reshoots to make it. Oh wow! Because they're. Their, their pitch now is Universal Monsters should be like the Marvel Cinematic Universe where all these movies are connected. Yeah, so they went back right. and added it's, the beginning and end. Yeah. And then you have, you know, they the are going to do remake, such damage to that. Oh, I know. I mean, I grew up, this is, everyone knows it who gives a fuck about my stuff. Is uh, This is still what matters to me most is literally the old black and white movies. I know it sounds rather uh, yeah. <laughs> cobwebby, but uh, they that's where I was inspired and... Uh, um, I mean, in a way, Universal ruined their own franchise, but there's sure. still something intriguing about sure. it. And I, as we're saying, to turn that sort of thing into this, I mean, Van Helsing was already a, a warning as to what they were uh, capable of doing that to the fucking uh, movie, to yeah. the horror franchise. But also, like Carrie is no longer. I mean, Carrie is now an X Man, you know. Oh in sure. The, in the remake, so there's just this sense of trying to tap into the superhero fandom with horror that. Is really unappealing to and me. you know it's, it's worse I, than I, just I miss, I miss horror I'm, I really miss yeah, horror but horror uh, this is the other thing horror by definition all the way through to the 60s and early 70s uh, is it's a bastard genre that is uh, trying to shake people out of complacency by actually shocking them yes. uh, it speaks to being um, um, other you know it speaks to being an outsider sure uh it speaks to the randomness of life these the the themes of horror are incredibly potent and they need to be um and i feel that by turning them into superheroes we're getting easy morals you know freddie or i don't know what uh, the halloween character you know michael myers has just bad parenting you know yeah they, i don't need they, that everything backstory. is reduced to yeah. sort of the, this safe place where we understand the world and that's not horror used to unsettle you and actually uh, make you feel off balance it'll make you think and make you therefore right. think like what the, what are my assumptions that I brought into this theater they're all shaken and I feel uh off kilter now and I have to deal with that these are some of the charms of what horror can do um and you know even in a uh, doesn't have to be assaulting you with that's the other thing uh the only answer to everything I've said is just to be as violent as possible. That's also not serving, right. in my opinion, the, the the potential of horror. And my whole thing lately with like, because horror is, I'd say it's mainstream in a way now. Like that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it right. Is mainstream, like, bl like the Jason Blumification of horror. Yeah. Um, Hollywood to me, for, I've been, you know, I'm sure you've been saying this for years too. But like <laughs> every time a horror movie opens, like big they're like surprised for some reason yeah. like horror movies make money but instead of throwing money at like interesting projects they're just paranormal five paranormal six and like there's so much room in the marketplace for smart good horror with a budget and 
I don't know if we're getting there. I think we're going, as you say, I think like the superheroification of it, like we're going away well, from it. Well, even, uh, you know, the mission, um, the Conjuring uh, dude, what's his name? James uh, Wan. James Wan. I mean, you know, he speaks very well of what he wants to do. He wants to bring um, the like studio dollars to... Uh, yeah. And yet, even he has to sequelize everything yeah. um, instead of give us original movies. And I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong about sequels. There's just a slight bit of cynicism to them, and then eventually, yeah. actually, find remakes more egregious. Totally. Like, Conjuring itself is like the Amityville horror. In a, you know, it's well, those I think characters. That's the thing. It's yeah. Uh, whether or not it's called a remake, I think most horror movies now you can pretty much they suffer from remake fever. You know. Yeah, and so now yeah. You're watching maybe something like The Conjuring 2 and you're seeing little snippets of uh, The Exorcist. Totally. And, as, and, and then this weird Ken Loach vibe about the whole thing. I don't know. Uh, it's just, yeah. it's weird to me. I, think I mean, he's a good filmmaker. Let's totally. not rag on him. No, no, no. no. He's not, wonderful. Not, but I'm saying but that, he's in that a this, system. This, there is yeah. a cherry-picked vibe going yeah. on where there's something that's, you know, a remake or not. The other thing, though, I mean, now we get into the real issues of, you know, it's also a generational thing is a lot of the younger kids are watching movies that's what they're referencing and you know in the old days uh people were immigrants they came here they went to hollywood to get a job and they uh they brought some of their life experience to to the the situation or you had somebody like uh, george romero or or yeah. or you know uh, some tortured John Carpenter, and I'm only speaking of that period, but there was a, James Whale was probably had his own issues. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the point is, is the, these people brought their anxieties and their passions and their business sense. Maybe they wanted to make a low-budget movie and they couldn't think what else. I mean, that's the Romero story. He, right. he, he liked Bergman, but he thought, well, I'll make a movie about zombies. Yeah. The point is, is there's a, there's a genuine uh, journey there, whereas now uh, it's a business People are just, they figured it out. I always say Halloween, of all movies, is where there was a corner turned. Yes. That was 79, and uh, Hollywood was like, oh, my God, look at this tiny, low-budget movie is making all this money. we got to get into this business. And then follow, you there know. There it goes, yeah. Yeah. The and, 80s happened. <laughs> and then the 80s happened. And yeah. some people will say, oh, come on, Larry, you know, Wes Craven is awesome. But I, I you know, uh, it's all a matter of taste, but I feel sure. some of the danger uh, drained out of uh, horror uh, from then on I don't disagree at all oh man I don't want to end now it's we've been talking an hour but I think it just got to uh to an yeah, impasse. yeah we're just getting into it <laughs> <laughs> well I, I do want to say yeah. this the thing about remakes is they're also not of their time uh of course there's the exception now and again which I guess proves the rule like the thing by Carpenter is is fantastic yeah I think most people would agree yeah um the fly but are we talking about the thing recent remake <laughs> probably not because it didn't seem to yeah thank you the fly but right. see the fly was updated and it felt so absolutely to be about aids that we could all relate to it again right but most remakes like texas chainsaw remake number 25 yeah uh it's really just pretty kids uh, the 45 degree shutter speed from the MTV, uh, but it's, they're not bringing a new sense sense of uh, social understanding. Whereas, believe me, when they had uh, Leatherface cutting up hippies, that was very much a response to the oh, times. Oh, totally. And you felt it. Same with Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. That was all those uh, movies. You know, the racism in there and all the other elements were so much of their time. 
you can't just remake that stuff. You've got to draw from what's happening now. Right. Yeah, and that's, there's plenty yeah. of bad shit. If anybody, yeah, like <laughs> what happened to those like to the Toby Hoopers of the world who like were yeah. making those movies where Texas Chainsaw is so much of its time and place. Yeah, it couldn't have happened any other any other time. And now, yeah, the whole idea is the studios have now is just like, yeah, fucking do that one again. And yeah, we'll get a new Leatherface. There's so much self-referencing in the genre right now because that's what's safe. That's where the horror cash cow comes from. And the, the, the executives are just kids. They're 27 years old. They grew up watching, I mean, watching movies, not yeah. having life experience. And uh, everything was available to them from yeah. video and then the internet. So there's... Even Blair Witch, I mean, I don't know if that's completely held over. I'm saying the original. Yes. Uh, it's it's funny. It's not the kind of movie like The Shining that you revisit every year. But it, right. it certainly made its stamp. And it was, it came out of some kids saying, let's try this experiment. Yeah, I just rewatched it before did, watching the new one. Up? Amazingly. Yeah, it's probably better than it was. It's great. Yeah. It's so, it's an exercise in restraint. They don't show you fucking anything. It's a subtle movie down to the hor horrifying ending. The ending yes. is so, so, so amazing. The ending still gets <laughs> me. And I saw the new one. I don't want to shit talk yeah. Adam Wingard, who I love, but yeah. that movie did nothing for me because yeah. it was a, it was a straight remake. They kept selling it like it was a sequel, but it was the shot for shot almost. The like, best the thing about what adam did was yeah. the way he made a movie called the woods and then they said nope yes. we're kidding it's actually a sequel so right. that the, it was the marketing <laughs> the marketing was totally cool yes it totally just came out of the blue they said like i think they tried a... to emulate because the lightning in the bottle of the originals marketing yeah. will never happen again well that's true oh, too sure, yeah. yeah so like i think they tried to to some like we have to stand out in some way and it worked i i, I want to say it worked but the movie tanked oh, sure and it's a bummer yeah <laughs> even if a movie i don't like is a, a horror movie I don't like does bad at the box office. I'm not happy. Right. I want all horror movies to do well. Did yeah. you guys see uh, Don't Breathe? Nope. I, have I know not. that's the one to see. Actually, it's pretty good. I'm really excited for that. And what? Yeah. It's an original story, unless yes. I'm completely wrong. Maybe no, it's you're a right. French movie or something. No, I mean I'm sure there are. Oh, there's plenty. Like there's it. this new thing. I guess it's like a new fad with what do you call it? Like dis disability horror, where oh, like really? this this person they rob a blind guy. Right. Then there's that movie Hush that Mike Flanagan did last year, that's where funny. the girl is deaf that's oh, cool. being home invaded. Um, well, in, in Insidious honestly, 3, she's in a wheelchair. Is, that is of our time. In other words, yes. we're now with the ultimate sort of PC. That's on the mind. And then, you know, you have the brutes, uh, the, the, the Donald Trump characters, in other words, oh, people yeah. who are uh, oppressing. And so that actually feels of its time, and that might be why it works. I mean, yeah. maybe it's a well-made film, of course. Yeah, again, you talked about sound design. That yeah. movie lives and dies by its sound design. Of course. It's amazing. Uh, by the way, just to cite Wait Until Dark, of course, an old movie with uh, the blind yes. uh, protagonist. Yes, awesome. yes. Awesome movie. All right, well, thanks for indulging me and talking all these horror things with me. Wait, uh, we're not finished. Oh, please. I, I'll keep talking. I don't want to keep you guys. I uh, know. It's all good. Um, so uh, Tales from Beyond the Pale live October 20th at Lincoln Center. Do you know who the guests are? Can you say? No, we're not saying. Okay. <laughs> we are announcing on we'll Wednesday. Announce, yeah, tickets go on sale on Thursday, I think, the 6th. Okay. And... Uh, Snatch them up, folks. We definitely will serve up some chilling, some chills, and uh, some spills, and chill spills. Maybe some spilling, some thrills. Yeah, thrill in there. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, thank and nothing will be run the mill. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for listening to the New Flesh podcast. Uh, I'm Brett Arnold at Brett Redacted on Twitter. You guys want to plug anything else? You're, you got Twitter accounts? <laughs> oh, who knows? Glass Eye Picks. Please go to glasseyepicks.com and talesfrombeyondthepale.com. Find me at Mr. Glenn McQuaid. Okay. Twitter. Very yes, cool. That's Mr. Glenn McQuaid to you. It's not <laughs> Dr. Uh, that's my uh, Instagram account. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Is it really? <laughs> Dr. Glenn, MD. You may find me there. But no, we're just happy to be here chatting about Glenn uh, McQuaid's DDS. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to end the episode you. here with another clip from Tales from Beyond the Pale. Check it out. Pike, wake up. We're here. Hmm? What? Yeah, I'm here. What's with all the noise? What is all that? Are those? Yes, Pike. They're all ships. 147 so far. All dormant and adrift. Only one has an active distress beacon engaged. It will be in visual range in just a moment. What about the Helio thing? Are we good? How far are we from the edge? It's not a set border, Pike. It expands and contracts as the solar winds and the forces that act upon them vary. We are safe for now, but I am continuing to monitor the situation. Good. My God, look at them all. This is a gold mine, Al. It's like Timo said. Even as scrap, there was something, but if a couple of these ships are actually still in working order, we're gonna be set. Is that the one with the distress signal? Yes. Shall I play it? Yeah.